Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. It's good to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting a new chapter today. Um, good to be with people that I love. Um, we are going to be talking about spiritual gifts. Yeah. So, so this is kind of, this has a, the tendency to be a fairly hot topic. All right. Uh, because there's lots of different views on the, the idea of spiritual gifts. Lots of different perspectives they can't all be right, okay? Let, let, me, let me explain that to you right out front. They can't, they can't all be right. Um, some of you are familiar, you know, in other uh, Christian sects or, or maybe cults even. Uh, there are lots of different types of Jesus, right? Uh, the Jehovah's Witness have a type of Jesus, don't they? Uh, Islam has a type of Jesus. The Mormons have a type of Jesus. And and they're using the same name, right? They're using the same vernacular as it concerns who Jesus is, but the narrative surrounding his life is completely different. And so the two, the two different kinds of Jesus can't be the same, right? He can't both be the Jesus of the Gospels, but also the Jesus that unexplainably showed up and, and preached to the Native Americans 200 years ago, Right? Uh, we don't get to just make things up. We, we are obligated uh, by God and by his spirit to look at what his word says and let the Bible tell us what's true and what's not. And this seems like a fairly you know, easy concept, you know, uh, but, but in, in practice, it's so often not true. It's not the case. Uh, people are inventing, inventing concepts uh, to support and to justify the way the way they want to live and the way they want to conduct ministry and, and the way they want to live their Christianity. And so this passage, though, it, you know, I think is, is difficult for some people, and it might be difficult for some of you who come from a, a different background than, than us. Um, I want you to be patient because it's going to take me a few weeks and a few times of being together with you to make a full case uh, for what the Bible says. Uh, and if you have questions, I want to invite you right up front that you can reach out to me and we can have conversations. I want to invite that. Um, if, if, you, you know, if you have something that you need to discuss or work through, I am available to you. But let's start by reading the passage today and then we'll get into the nitty gritty. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversity, uh, diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for these wonderful people. Uh, Lord, I'm so grateful to be with them today. I'm thankful for worship. I'm thankful for worship that is sourced in your word, that we can pray back to you, your scripture, and, and identify with who you are in your word, even in the way that we lift up our voices. Lord, I pray that our praise would be satisfactory to you. And, and Lord, I know that the only thing that is unsatisfactory to you when your people are worshiping is people who are doing it fraudulently and, and they're struggling in their own heart to believe. I know that there's people today that are here and they, they just don't have faith yet. And so God, I ask that you would use your word today and in this moment, in this hour, that you would use your word to speak to them 
and to bring them life, to, to bring them to the end of themselves, to, to help them to recognize their sin for what it truly is, that they might be able to repent of it and call on your precious name for healing. Lord, we need you. Uh, we love you. We're grateful for your word, and we ask that you would bless it as we study it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, now, I, I think you guys could probably acknowledge this, but uh, people in Christianity are often looking for an experience, right? They're looking for something experiential in their faith. They're looking for a faith that they can feel and engage it, uh, with, with, with all of their senses. Now, I actually believe that this is a really important thing. I think it's really important for us to have a, a God that we worship that cause us to feel feels, right? I think it's important to be able to cry before the Lord, and, and I think it's important to have those moments where you feel loved, not just intellectually, but emotionally as well by our Savior. Uh, obviously, he feels feels for us, right? And his love for us is very much experiential because he went to the cross that he loved us so much, right? And I think it's really important for us to have a faith that is experiential, but sometimes, sometimes, if we're not careful, um, our faith can become so emotional that we prioritize emotion over truth. The emotionalism becomes the main thing. And, and when you think about church and you think about coming to worship, that the main thing that you can be looking for oftentimes is an experience in the praise, warm and fuzzy feelings that you want to walk away having been broken or um, manipulated or, or led into some sort of emotional form. And we get to a place where that becomes the main priority. And, and the sad thing about that is that there are churches all over the world that are seeking to create those kinds of experiences because, like a drug, you want to keep coming back for it. You want that Jesus dopamine hit every time you come to church. For instance, when, when churches focus primarily on tantalizing people's senses, they can create artificial worship. They can conjure emotional responses that are actually never rooted in truth to begin with. And so you can walk away feeling spiritual, but have never actually met with God. There are leadership in churches that, that, whether intentionally or not, conflate Christian virtue with spiritual feelings. Because they know that that's what people want in a postmodern world, that that's what people are seeking after. So in the pursuit of experience, many good Christians are willing to neglect the simple truths of Scripture in order to justify their emotional-led conduct. So in fact, they will even miscontextualize the scriptures to justify a form of spiritual gifting that platforms their experientialism over who Jesus Christ actually is and what he says. So let me give you an example of what I mean. Let me, let me tie those two ideas together, the idea of experientialism and spiritual gifts. Let me, let me say it this way. For example, many Christians want to believe that even today that God appoints people with the office of apostle. They want to believe that, despite the fact that Acts chapter 1 very, very clearly tells us that there are 12 apostles plus one, being Paul. He's the extra and, and it lays out for us very, very clearly the requirements of an office of apostle. In Acts chapter 1, it tells us that these men had to be men that had been with Jesus from his baptism through his earthly ministry all the way to the cross. But also beyond that, they had to have witnessed him after his resurrection. This was a requirement for apostleship. Every ordained apostle in the Bible met those very requirements besides Paul, who was the one exception, who proves the very rule. And he even talks about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4 says this. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, 
he was seen of me, Paul, as one of born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And so very clearly from this passage, we recognize that Paul's saying is he is the exception. Not only that, he is the last of the apostles. Not only that, people today didn't actually walk with Jesus and see his baptism and witness his resurrection. We can all agree to that, right? That none of us were there. So that disqualifies us from the office of apostle. So then the question is, why do people make these declarations? Why do people suggest that there can be apostles today? Why are these views somewhat common, in fact? Okay, this is tough. You ready? Because in all reality, many Christians' final authority is not the Bible. It's their experiences. Specifically, how those experiences make them feel. And if they're honest, their Bible is a flexible Bible. It's it's flexible. It'll give and move according to the way that they feel. Their Bible is flexible because each time they get a prophetic word or say, God told me such and such, they are literally, quite literally, adding to the canon of Scripture and declaring that their spiritual experiences are equal or greater than the written words of the Bible. That the Bible somehow needs to subjugate itself to what they've felt or what they've been through or what they've experienced. Consider for a moment the incredible privilege of of the Apostle Peter. Think about Peter for a second. In Peter's life, he witnessed Christ doing amazing, miraculous things, right? Right? turning water to wine and, and, and feeding the 5,000. And, and, and time after time after time, Peter was right there watching Jesus do the absolute, absolute impossible. Not only that, but after Christ's death and his resurrection, Peter himself was used by God to do incredible things. Absolutely miraculous, unexplainable things. But with all of these experiences, we would, we would say that, that the Apostle Peter would, if anybody, have, he would have the right to suggest that his experiences are authoritative, wouldn't he? That if anybody could, it would probably be the Apostle Peter. But all his life experiences, there was one experience that seemed to stand out to him. There was one moment in all of his life that really stood out to him that he thought was exceptionally amazing. And that was the time that he and James and John stood with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the three of them witnessed as Jesus Christ's body, his earthly body, transformed right before them into a body of light, into a divine body. One that would look like his body in eternity to come. And in that moment, they watched him engage with Elijah and Moses, prophets of old, prophets that they had read from over and over and over again. And so it was like this meeting of the giants. And in that moment, the only thing that they could come to, the only conclusion that they could draw is that this is the most holy place that that, that has ever been, that has ever existed, and we ought to build a temple right here, right now. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? He just got his hammer out, and he's like, let's do it. Listen, to, listen to, to the story of, of, of this transfiguration experience. In Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it says, And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as the snow. This, this, is, this, is, our, this is the truest Jesus right here. Pretty amazing. So as no fuller on earth can white them, there was nothing, nothing on earth as white has ever been as white as his raiment was in this moment. 
And there appeared unto him Elias and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. He knew the honor of this experience. He knew the privilege of it. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. And he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus, only with themselves. Can you believe what that would have been like to see that, to witness that? But despite all of that, as Peter is recollecting his life and he's thinking of all of these experiences that he's had, he comes back to this moment and then he writes about it in a very peculiar way. He, draws, he uses it to draw a stark contrast between it and the value of God's word. Listen to this. In 2 Peter 1, he writes this, verse 16. For we, meaning the apostles and the followers of Jesus Christ, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. These are no myths. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he's acknowledging what he experienced that day. He's recollecting. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So this was the experience that he had. And he is recalling it. But I want to point out to you what he says next. Let me see if I, I lose my spot. Oh, that's First Peter. My bad. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent, uh, from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now listen to what he says here. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this, first, that no prophecy of, scripture, of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men, men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So you, you understand the gravity of what he's saying there, don't you? He's saying that despite the fact that he had had this experience, despite the fact that he heard the voice of God from heaven in a cloud, despite the fact that he saw Jesus Christ transfigured before him, despite the fact that he felt all those feels in that moment, that we collectively have a more sure word of prophecy, that we have something truer than that experience, Do we have something better than a moment just like that? Do we have something way better than those warm and fuzzy feelings that we get on a Sunday morning when we're singing praise? And we don't have to manipulate God's word. We have to submit to God's word that we might truly experience him for who he is. This book ought not conform to our lives. We ought to conform to it. Listen, people who live their Christianity with a permanent state of charismatic experientialism, they use those experiences to fill the spiritual gaps on a God they don't honestly know. See, many people sadly only know a God of euphoric encounters. And I think that's a shame. Today we're, beginning, we're going to begin a series of sermons from 1 Corinthians 1 on spiritual gifts and the value that each of us individually bring to the body of Christ. And so, as usual, before we get too deep, we've got a couple of key questions. You didn't even know we haven't even started the sermon yet. 
couple key questions per usual. First one's this. What are spiritual gifts? Seems like a fair question. What are spiritual gifts? And how do I discern between real and false spirituality? How do I discern between real and false spirituality? Okay, you got that down? The, as, as we say from time to time, the slides are available to you. We are going to move kind of fast. So if you visit kaya.live in the teaching section, you'll be able to grab those slides and you can follow along there if that's easier for you. Okay, let's start in verse 1. <clears throat> this is what Paul has to say to the church in Corinth. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Why does he say that? Because there's a potential for ignorance. Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Paul tells them, look, as it concerns spiritual gifts, there is a lot of room for confusion and ignorance. So let me help you to not be ignorant on this subject. Let me explain the spiritual gifting thing. So let's start here. What is a spiritual gift? I mean, he's going to explain it throughout the passage, but, but we should start here just to frame it. What is a spiritual gift? Well, spiritual gifts are not like talents. They're not like natural gifting. All of us have natural gifts, right? Predilections that we came up with. Maybe it's intellectual. Maybe it's physical. Certain things that you're good at, you're prone to, right? Some of you are good at math. Some of you are bad at it. Some of that's teaching and education, and some of it's just, well, mental capacity. Some of you are good at sports. Some of you aren't. Some of that comes by learning, and some of it you came by naturally, because your parents were clumsy, and so are you. And you don't, you don't play sports ball. Right, Seth? Or Sam? Right, Sam always says, calls every sport sports ball. <laughs> Everything's sports ball. <clears throat> All right, granted, I have, I have known Sam a really long time. So everything blurs together. He might have said that when he was like, Nine. <laughs> <clears throat> but see, here's the deal. While there might be some similarities between your skills in the flesh and spiritual gifts, they're not necessarily the same. Spiritual gifts, this is what spiritual gifts are if you're writing things down. Spiritual gifts are the qualities that the Spirit of God has uniquely endowed every believer for the purpose of living God's mission. They're the qualities that the Spirit of God has uniquely endowed every believer for the purpose of living God's mission. It's unique, and it's circumstantial. It's circumstantial. And I believe that God outfits a person specifically for where they're at in life, in the moment that they're in. That he provides spiritual gifts that are fit to meet the needs of, of his mission in this very moment. And he does that for every single one of you, every one of you that have the spirit living within them. And while there are a finite number of spiritual gifts available to every believer, the combination of those gifts and the way they work themselves out in your lives are incredibly unique. So let's continue on by looking at verse 2. You know that, that ye were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols even as ye were led. Well, that sounds harsh. We tell my kids at home, you don't get to use the D word. Dumb is off limits. We don't use that word. But that's not really what this word means. Not like dumb, like stupid. Though we could make a case that false idols are stupid. Uh, dumb meaning um, unuseful, unable, right? Uh, unable, of no power. And what he says to them is, look, before we talk about spiritual gifts... Let's talk about your spiritual experiences, the, the experiences that you're coming from. Where, where did you used to be in, form, in, in terms of your worship? So he says, you know, Gentiles, <clears throat> before you got saved, you were previously led astray by false teaching in the Corinthian temples, in the pagan worship. You were led astray. You were led astray by your experiences you were led astray by false worship, and you were influenced and ushered into lies. That's what he's reminding them of. 
that before they knew Christ, that their worship was informed by experientialism and false teaching. In Corinth, pagan temples uh, were places of ecstatic and uncontrollable forms of euphoric worship. I mean, we talked about earlier on that at least in some of these temples, people went there to have orgies, right? Out of control, what they would refer to as worship, but it's out of control behavior, extrasensory behavior. And this was common in the worship of Corinth. And that's the background that these people are bringing into this moment in this letter when Paul's writing to them. And so he says to them, you of all people should know that, listen, listen, not all spiritual activity is godly activity. That's what he's telling them. You of all people should know that not everything that feels spiritual is actually of God. What, is, what he's suggesting is that as Christians, they are still capable of allowing the pursuit of spiritual experience to guide their worship instead of truth. Instead of truth. Paul wants to teach them how to delineate between spiritual activity that originates with the Spirit of God and spiritual activity that's born of the Spirit of man. You know, the Apostle John, he warns us about this. And in his first uh, letter that we get from him, 1 John chapter 4, he says the following. Beloved, believe not every spirit. Believe not every spirit. Now, I want to say that there's a lot of you in the room that live life believing every spirit. Every good feeling that comes, you tend to chase after it. You tend to attribute truth to every good feeling that comes your way. That's a dangerous way to live, especially for a Christian. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, judge the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone, are gone out into the world. You guys know that, right? That there are many false teachers and false prophets that have gone out into the world, and they lead even Christians astray. And look, it's my heart to also teach you to judge spiritual things, to judge them. Some of the things people call spiritual gifts, listen, some of the things that people call spiritual gifts are neither spiritual or gifts. They're mysticism. It's Gnostic worship. It's no different than what we see in the temples of Corinth. Plainly speaking, in the church today, the false teaching surrounding spiritual gifts produces some of the most preoccupied and distracted Christians that have ever existed. So how do we decipher as believers, how do we decipher forms of spirituality that are authentic or false? How do we de decipher between the two? Well, luckily, the Bible tells us. Thank you. Okay, that makes that easier. Verse 3. Verse 3. This is what we're going, where we're going to learn. The first thing is the Holy Spirit always esteems Christ Lord. The Holy Spirit always esteems Christ as Lord. And that word Lord is actually very important. Three says, Wherefore I give to you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. In other words, a person who is indwelled by the Spirit of God will not go around denouncing Christ or calling him accursed. In fact, the exact opposite is true. A person filled with the Spirit is going to speak that Christ is Lord. They are going to attribute to him lordship. The Spirit of God would never provoke someone to speak against Jesus. And in every instance that Christ is proclaimed in our lives, Lord, Master, Ruler, the Spirit is the proponent of that speaking. Here's our key point. This is important. We measure spiritual value based on who receives glory and attention. 
we measure whether or not something is spiritually valuable based on who gets the glory and who's receiving the attention. So the conclusion we can draw from from verse 3 is that if it is of the Spirit, then it will not glorify or draw attention to anything other than Christ and His Lordship. Implied in this statement is that false spirits do the opposite, isn't it? The false spirits do the opposite. They take the attention away from Christ so that, so, so that human beings oftentimes or other subject matter is glorified and lifted up. And we're capable of this. We're capable of calling something spiritual that is actually just self-glorification and idolatry. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of how this plays out. Acts chapter 16, you guys may or may not know this story. We covered it quite a long time ago now. But there was a woman, a certain woman, that was possessed of a demon that was following Paul and his friends around in Macedonia. And it was a real weird experience. I don't know if you guys remember this, but she's walking around basically proclaiming the gospel, but in a way that's obnoxious and drawing attention away from their preaching. Acts 16, 16 says this, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. True. The statement's true. Correct? What she's saying is true. And it would appear on the surface as though she was representing Christ. On the surface, it looks as though she's doing a good thing. And this did she many days, but Paul being grieved. Why would he be grieved by that? Turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. What's happening here? Right message, wrong spirit. Right message, wrong spirit. Who was getting the attention? God or the woman? The woman was drawing attention to herself. So here's the point that I'm trying to make to you. is just because something is called Christian doesn't mean it's biblical. And it's our responsibility to judge, to try the spirits and determine whether or not something is, has a spiritual value. And we'll know that based on who is getting the glory and the attention. And I have to say that what I see often in contemporary spiritualists is a tendency to put the attention on themselves. They call what they're doing spiritual. They call what they're doing Christian. But ultimately, all it does is serve to put the attention on people and what they're doing and how they feel and how they're acting and how they behave rather than the expectations of Scripture scripture, and the glorification of Christ's name. So we know something is spiritual or is of God because he gets the glory. The other thing is this, too, is the word of God discerns spirits. The word of God itself, it discerns spirits. And as we try or judge the spirits, we are to hold our spiritual experiences up to the matrix of God's word. Any experience, look, it's not my responsibility to go around and tell people whether or not their experiences are valid. Someone says, well, at one time in a church service, this thing happened, and I felt this way, and it was amazing, and and I can't explain it, but this thing happened, and look, it's not my, my job to discern whether or not that's true. It's your experience, and if that's what you experienced, then I believe it to be so. But it's our responsibility collectively to use God's word to discern what spirit that was. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but not too long ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we covered this concept, and it goes like this. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things 
with spiritual things. And that leads us to this next key point, which is we measure spiritual validity based on whether or not it's defensible scripturally. Not because you felt it, not because you experienced it. You aren't, you aren't the authority. Your pastors are not the authority. The Bible's the authority. And if it's not defensible scripturally, then it's an invalid function. You can call it a spiritual gift, but doesn't mean that it is. It has to be defensible through the word of God. Let the word be true. Let God be true and every man a liar. We let the word of God scrutinize. We let it do the scrutinizing. What doesn't make it through the biblical investigation must be determined invalid. You guys aren't helping me. I'm not getting enough amens, so I'm feeling real. Like, this might, people might be upset right now. Maybe you are. Listen, I'm I'm trying to communicate this clearly, but also in a spirit of love. And I have to say that this is such a heightened subject matter and such a difficult subject matter that that's difficult to do. My job as a shepherd is to protect the flock. You guys recognize that, right? And so here I am. This is the flock that I have. Some of you are a flock just this, part of the flock just this morning. And some of you are part of the flock all the time. And so I, I want to suggest to you that, that in, in, in the spirit of love, I'm trying to communicate to you what the Bible says. And so I, I hope you're hearing it in those terms. But we have to go with God. We have to go with the word. Now, I want to I cover this other part. This is where we're going, and this is really probably the most applicable part for today's sermon. <clears throat> and that's this idea that there's a unique distris- distribution of spiritual gifts. The distribution of spiritual gifts is really interesting, and I want to hit this before we actually get into what the spiritual gifts in this chapter are. So now we begin learning what makes spiritual gifting so incredible for the believer. It all begins with this idea, okay? Here, here we go. Here's another point. God's specific plan for your life includes the endowment or the distribution of specific gifts that meet specific needs. So there's a specific plan, and you got to start there. You know that God has a plan for your life, that each of you are unique. Each of you are like a snowflake. There's there's never been another you. Your soul is incredibly important to the Lord, and he has has a plan for your life that is absolutely 100% unique. And that specific plan, praise the Lord, when you're filled with the Spirit of God, that specific plan takes on specific gifting. You, you get specific gifting that is intended to meet a specific need that God's put before you. And I can't wait to get into all the ways in which this is supposed to play out as we move through this chapter and the next, but, but I just want you to know that this has to be the premise that we start from. And here's the deal. You can't earn your gifts. There's not something you can do or some sort of training that you can do, training mechanism that will get you there. You can't earn those gifts. They're bestowed. You can't pray for your gifts despite the fact that some churches would tell you that you just need to pray for the gift of such and such, that it's coming, that it's the evidence, that it's somehow the proof that the Spirit lives in you. That's a lie. It's not scriptural. You can't pay a price for your gifting. If you remember, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 18 tried to buy spiritual gifts. That didn't work out real well for him. See, God distributes as he sees fit for his unique purposes. Verse 4. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. So, in other words, the same spirit in each of us gives us diverse gifts. Gifts that are meet for the master's use and prepare unto, prepared unto every good work. So there are many different kinds of giftings, many different combinations, right? God's encoded those into your life, and they may or may not change over time, but it's up to him to do that. 
Verse 5, and there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. Difference of administrations means essentially ministry applications. There are many ways in which the application of those gifts might manifest themselves in your life. They might unfold in different ways. And so you might have a particular gifting that's useful in this way in Kid Town, but it's useful in this way on the worship team. Does that make sense? So the same Lord determines what gifts are necessary for meeting the ministry responsibilities that he's put before you specifically. Verse 6, and there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. The way the gifts God has given you will manifest might vary. The way in which God demonstrates those gifts in your life might alter, they might modify, it might change over time from moment to moment, but it is him, it is he who is in control. He's the one in control. So what should you gather from all that? Here's your next key point. We're moving now. Moving now. You are responsible for being satisfied by God's precision in gifting you. You don't get to despise the way God gifted you. You don't get to be frustrated that you're not this or that. You don't get to look at someone else and compare yourself to someone else and say, say, I wish I was more like that. I wish someone would just give me that kind of opportunity and I could show them. I could show them just how gifted I really am. Listen, listen. If God can hang the stars, if he could be precise in the way in which our universe functions and the way our earth rotates around, our solar system functions, rotates around the sun, I'm pretty confident that he knows exactly what he's doing when he gives you two or three of these 15 gifts. I think he's got that figured out. If he's got the code of your DNA figured out, I think he knows what you need in terms of spiritual gifting. So you don't need to despise him. You need to respect his precision. What's his goal in the gifting? What's it say is the, his, his primary objective in giving you gifts? Don't forget this. It's to bring profit or to benefit everyone for his namesake. Verse, verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. It's intended to profit the work of his kingdom in the lives of his people. It's supposed to profit everyone. Now we're going to get into that more and more as we move throughout the chapter, but he is using you, he's fitly joining you to the body. And he's making you useful to the edifying of saints. You have a purpose, you are meaningful, and we need you. We need you here in this body. So now let's talk about the spiritual gifts. Let's define them. Can we do that? I know it's hard work. This is a little more teaching than preaching today, okay? But, but hang with me here. Like, this is, look, here's the thing about expository preaching. I don't get to choose what I'm teaching this week. It slaps me on the face, right? I have got to deal with it. I've, I have to study what God's put in front of me. And so here we are. And I, I need, the uh, it's my responsibility to teach you this stuff today. So hang with me and take good notes. Revisit it later if you need to. So here's, here's the deal. This is the unique manifestation of spiritual gifts, okay? That's this next section. <clears throat> so as we dig into this list of gifts, let's consider how each gift was considered necessary for profiting souls. Each one of these things. Okay. Now I'm going to define these things, but we're going to keep working through this. So hang with me. Week after week, we're going to work through this. Let's start here. The word of wisdom, word of wisdom, and a word of knowledge. Verse 8. <clears throat> For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. So let's keep it simple. What is wisdom? What's wisdom? Well, it's the application of knowledge. Wisdom is using knowledge. It's mastering what you know. It's living it out and, 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 and functioning in light of truth. Well, what's knowledge? Knowledge is information from God. Isn't it? 
I mean, that's, that's what, the, what knowledge is in Scripture. It's information that comes from God. So historically, listen, let's be, we're going to be plain today. Historically, in the first century, we understand that a word of knowledge was likely a spoken word of new revelation. In other words, someone was given a word of knowledge. They were given a word of wisdom. That means that they were speaking a new revelatory idea that was not yet known or composed in the body of scriptural work that they had at the time. Okay? So we're going to come back to this later, but, but in the first century, without a complete canon of scripture, revealed words were necessary for church members to help them function the way that they should in the church. So someone got a word of wisdom that was of God because what it did is it met the need that Scripture couldn't yet meet because it wasn't finished. It wasn't written. It wasn't canonized. It wasn't provided to the saints. And so a word of revelation was required because it met those stop gaps. So that's, that's what that is. We're going to move kind of quick here. So that's word of wisdom, word of knowledge. Three, faith. Oh, well, wait a second. Are we all supposed to have faith? Yes, yes, but this is a unique kind of faith. This is a supernatural kind of faith to another faith by the same spirit. And faith here would be, the gift of faith would be this, a supernatural ability to trust God when others seemingly can't. When others struggle to believe, the person that's gifted with faith has enough foolishness to say, well, God can this is the only place faith is described as a gift in Scripture, but it's clearly distinct from the standard of faith that all of us should have. Some people have a unique measure of childlike expectancy. You guys know these people? Think of them in your mind right now. There are certain people with a measure of childlike expectancy, and in terms of profiting the body, these are people that are more likely to turn to prayer like that in any moment. These are the people that you're hanging out, you're talking about a problem, they're the one that says, well, let's pray about it. Have you prayed about it yet? That's the gift of faith. It's a unique kind of optimism concerning God and his work. Number four, healing. To another, the gifts of healing by the same spirit. This, This idea of the gift of healing, it's a supernatural ability to heal anyone, anytime, with 100% reliability. Now, let's be honest, you don't know a single person that could do this. How did we go from the gift of faith to the gift of healing? Because some of these gifts, as we're going to get to, are temporary gifts. They had a temporary function in the first century because there was not a completed word of God to meet this need. The gospel had not yet been spread. And so here you have the gift of healing and it's, and it's the ability to heal anyone, anytime, 100% of the time. So spiritually speaking, a, this is a spiritual gift of healing, and it makes a person a healer. That's what they are. So, of course, Alan Shelby came to mind, and I know what he'd say right here in this moment. He would say, if you know someone who claims to have the apostolic or signed gift of healing then if they aren't clearing out the cancer ward at Children's Mercy right this moment, they are either a monster or a liar. That put a hole in that real quick. So this gift was temporary, a sign that the Messiah had come and, you, and was used to legitimize the gospel. And we, we know about this because the gospels talk about it. Mark chapter 16, 17, and these signs shall follow them that believe. There's certain, there's certain sign gifts that were going to be bestowed upon those early believers that were intended to point everyone to the Messiah. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Okay, this is speaking of those believers that are following that resurrection of Jesus. Next gift, the gift is the gift of miracles. The gift of miracles, verse 10, to another, the working of miracles. This is the ability to do supernatural acts and wonders. 
Again, these types of signs were intended to confirm the authority of the word of God, to confirm or affirm the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So whether it be turning water into wine or casting out demons, the gift of miracles was intended to validate the gospel. That's what it was intended to do. Now, guess what? This, this is going to get real redundant. Guess what we have now that confirms the validity of Jesus Christ? It's the Word of God. The Word of God. Six, the gift of prophecy to another prophecy. Now, prophecy means, very literally, to declare the purposes of God. And so in this way, the function of a preacher is a carryover of the prophet, okay? And so the, the, the standing up here is the work of prophesying. Standing up here and proclaiming the words of God is prophesying. Now, again, in light of an incomplete scripture, sometimes a prophet was given the, the, the ability to speak a word of wisdom or to declare a future thing. And so sometimes in the first century and before that, a prophet would say, hey, this is what's going to happen. And they would foretell something from the future. Again, this gifting was a stopgap intended to help the church in light of an incomplete word. Number seven, the gift of discerning spirits. To another, discerning spirits is what it says. The ability to evaluate a situation spiritually and dis- discern what kind of spirit is behind it. And so you, you may know people like this. <clears throat> Usually pastors actually have this gift. Some of them don't. Some pastors are actually just fairly oblivious and, and they have to use the Bible to discern anything, to even tie their shoes, which is good. That's a good place to be. But then there's some, there's some pastors that are just naturally or, or leaders in ministry who are just naturally able to see just beyond a situation. They could see what's behind it. And so these are people that are gifted with the ability to discern spirits, a heightened sensitivity to spiritual activity and its authorship. Now, we should all be discerning. Now, what makes us discerning? How do we sharpen our discernment? The Bible. That's how we sharpen our discernment. We compare spiritual with spiritual. But there are some that have a keen sense of the matrix, you know, the comparing scripture with scripture. There are some people that have that kind of built into them. People who are gifted at counseling often have an ability to discern spirits. So, so that's what that is. It's a keen ability to, to see and apply, um, you know, in, in real time. The next thing is this, gift of tongues, gift of tongues. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fix a misnomer here real quick. Now, we're going to cover this again and again, so I'm not trying to wear this out or tire it, because so, we're going to come back to this, but this is, let's be real clear here. This is the supernatural ability to speak in a known language that you've never studied, okay? The fact that you've never studied is what makes it a miracle. The fact that the language exists itself is not a miracle, okay? The, the fact that there are foreign languages By the way, do you know that there are 40 dialects of language that die every year? Pretty wild. This is what happens in a globalized world. Another sermon. Okay. But, But this is a specific gift to suddenly have the ability to speak in Spanish despite the fact that you've never studied Spanish. That's what it is. It is not an angelic tongue. And even if it was, um, every time, every case that an angel speaks in Scripture, they're using human language. Side note. That's a decent point. I'm not trying to be condescending. It's just a, it's, it's a good point. They're using human language. So, so this is not some unknown, like, mystical language. It is very clearly from act, known from Acts chapter 2 that when these men were given the gift of speaking in tongues, 
that they were speaking the languages of the many people who had traveled from surrounding areas into Jerusalem for the feast days. And they could suddenly speak these languages. And everybody was standing around amazed because these guys are stupid and clearly don't have a good education. Where did they learn all these different languages? Ah, it was a miracle. It was a special gift, a sign, a sign that the Messiah had come. The context being a sign of those who did not have a, for those who did not have a completed word. And they required supernatural evidences to substantiate the message of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 22 says, Wherefore, tongues are for a sign. They're for a sign. They're supposed to do this. Jesus, he's over there. That's what signs do, is they point you the direction. Signs aren't intended to be your little worship world. They're not about, it's not about you. It's about glorification. Nine, the gift of interpretation of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues is what it says. This is the ability to interpret a language you have never studied. Okay, so it's, it's the flip side to the guy that's speaking in tongues. Okay, so obviously you can imagine for a second if Seth suddenly had the ability to speak French, right? And the audience was half French and half German, right? Someone who's German might gift, get the gifting of interpretation in order to fill the rest of the audience in. Does that make sense? Okay, this is what Seth just said, right? It, that's how it would work. It was a supernatural gift that was bestowed, intended to help the rest of the audience understand what was happening despite the fact that someone was speaking a foreign language. This is what the Bible says, guys. That's what it says. Now, these are the gifts that God dispersed among the church. These are the gifts. Now, there are other lists of gifts in the Bible, okay? And there are other offices in the Bible that, that play upon these gifts. And so if you're looking for other places in the Bible where lists of gifts are, you can turn to Romans 12, 4 through 8. You can put your bookmark in there or write that down. Romans 12, 4 through 8 gives us another list that, that is slightly different. And I would suggest that the Romans list is probably a little bit more accurate to our reality as a church today. And so while in 1 Corinthians there's a lot of temporary gifts in our list, the list in Romans is much more complete. Why? Why? Because it was written later in Paul's life, later in his ministry, and the word of God was actually coming closer to completion. For the letter in Corinth, this is an early letter in the church. But, but, but not only that, but... Romans was written to an audience much more focused on the New Testament church, the church ahead of them. And so Romans chapter 12 is a very good example, and then there's also a list in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Now, as, as we close, I want to point out a couple things, okay? <clears throat> I want to point just a couple things out that I think are really important. First of all, I made the claim that there are temporary sign gifts, Okay, there are temporary sign gifts. That these lists, because these, these epistles were written in the first century, they have a first century reality. There's a historic application in these passages. And so we can't negate that. We can't just throw that away. But we don't get to explain it away either and try to appropriate these gifts and use them and abuse them in a way that doesn't make any sense to their context. We don't get to do that. And so what we will come to understand is that there, there, is a t there is a temporary nature to the sign gifts. Well, how do you make that claim? Okay, well, we'll come to this later, but 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 8 says this, Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. And whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, speaking of a word of knowledge, it shall vanish away. That gift shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now, we're going to exposit that passage soon, and you'll come to understand uh, exactly how this applies, but the point is that we can all acknowledge that there is a ceasing of operation to some of these gifts. The Bible is, is expressed about that, isn't it? 
The question for us is going to be, and I don't want to give too much away, but what is that which is perfect, which is coming, that would cause the gifts to cease? Okay, all right, well, let's just for a second. What two things are perfect? Jesus and the Word of God. These are the two things that are perfect, correct? All of us agree. Okay, now, when, when 1 Corinthians was written, two things had yet to come. Two things had yet to come. The Word of God, the Scripture of God had not yet been complete. And the other thing would be that Jesus hasn't come back yet. Okay, so that which is perfect that's coming, well, it's Jesus. And so that means that the gifts are, all of these gifts are in function, even today, even right now, because Jesus has not yet come back. Okay, interesting claim. Valid. Except for the fact that something else perfect was completed before his coming. Something else intercepted that timeline. Something else perfect actually has come. And we have it right here. It's perfect. It's infallible. It's divine. And it's for you and me. And so, you know, I know that it's a tough claim, but I think scripturally I can, I can use scripture in a rational and reasonable way. I can compare scripture with scripture and make a clear argument that some of the gifts have ceased because we no longer need them. And you certainly don't get to take the list of gifts and make them into whatever you want them to be on top of it. You don't get to abuse them and, 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 and make any weird language that you come up with speaking in tongues. Because no place in scripture is that speaking in tongues. Tough stuff, guys. Tough stuff. In the coming weeks, we're going to explain this a little bit more. And again, you can reach out to me. Feel free to reach out to me if you've got questions. The other thing I want to point out, secondly, is we, if we don't understand what God's word says about gifting and how it should be exercised, then who's the, what's the standard? Who becomes the standard if we don't understand what God's word says about spiritual gifts? This isn't a trick question. I don't ask trick questions because I'm real stupid. Who becomes the standard? You, you do. We do. We, get, we become the standard. We get to say, well, well, this is what it is. This is what it means. And when we become the standard for ecclesiastic practice, it is certain to devolve into disorder and endeavors and displays of the flesh. That's what it's going to do. The spiritual gifts, just like the ordinances, should be observed in light of the matrix of God's word. Right? Which is, which is why we're going to continue to study this out and look at it more. Lastly, and this is the primary point, okay? If you're going to walk away with some application today, other than like, whoa, that was so much, okay? Here's the application. The point of today's sermon is that as Christians, we must acknowledge that God has distributed unique gifts to us that are intended to be stewarded. And we must embrace the fact that God has given us work to do and that we must employ these gifts for that work. And there's some of you who are saying, well, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. That's okay. Keep growing in the knowledge of God's word. Keep studying the book. Keep exercising ministry. Keep working truth out in your life. Don't quit. Press in. And what happens, usually what happens is you run up against a need. And then suddenly a spiritual gift abounds in you. And you're like, ah, that's who I am. That's who I am. And it just becomes immediately apparent. That's part of the maturing process. And so you say to yourself, well, I just don't know yet. Hey, the Lord's going to reveal it to you. And he'll reveal it by the work of ministry. So embrace that. Pray that God will help you to understand your spiritual gifts, that he'd reveal to you how you can be useful in the calling and the plan for your life. I want to invite the worship team up. Okay, and as we close, we're going to have a moment of prayer and worship. Here's the invitation for you. Here's the invitation. First and foremost, if you are working through what your gifts are, pray with someone. 
Pray with someone. Hey, hey, would you pray with me? I don't know exactly what my spiritual gifts are. As I look at, especially as you look at Romans, I want to recommend you go and look at Romans chapter 4. Okay, and you look through that list and, and you look and you see, okay, I'm not exactly sure how God's outfitted me. Will you pray with me that God would show me? That's a, that would be a really great prayer to conclude this sermon with. The other thing I want to suggest and, and I want you to pray about is if some of the things that I said today were difficult and they go against things that you were taught maybe growing up or your other, your other church experiences or, 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 or maybe something that you've come to believe just over time in your own study or, or whatever it might be, okay? And, I, and what I shared today from God's word conflicted with that. Don't be dismayed. Pray about that too. Grab someone and say, hey, look, today's sermon was just difficult for me. And, and it, it, it kind of is abrasive and it ran in, in contrast to what I've known. Would you pray with me that I would come to have a biblical understanding of spiritual gifts? Isn't that what we all want at the end of the day? We, we, want, to, we want to believe what the Bible says. And so, so let's ask the Lord to help us. Can we do that? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for my friends. Hey, thank you for a tough word, a hard word, uh, some, some good old-fashioned teaching, some ac- academic work. Uh, Lord, you gave us that. That's where we're at in your word, and, and I believe that your Holy Spirit has been here, that your Holy Spirit is even working in the lives of the people in this room. And so, Lord, I pray, I pray, pray for a submissive heart. Lord, I pray for, for people to, to be gentle in their spirit now, that they would listen to you and that they would reflect on, on the word today and that they would yield themselves as instruments to you. And, and that, that includes their heart, that includes their mind. And, and so, Lord, I pray that your words would speak to them in their mind and that they would draw conclusions that resonate and reflect the truth of your word. Help us to be biblicists today. Not experientialists. Not contemporary mystics. Help us to be biblicists. And I know that, Lord, you'll use us mightily. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.